How many Christians do you think there were around A.D. 100? About the time that the last disciple took his last breath. 60? <laughs> That's a little low. About, about 25,000 is what church historians estimate. 200 years later, about 300 A.D., 20 million Christians. How did they do that? How did they grow from a, a small movement to a significant religious force in, in the Roman Empire in just two centuries? And remember, they were an illegal religion throughout this period, barely tolerated and oftentimes severely persecuted. They didn't have church buildings, didn't have pipe organs, didn't have electric guitars or choirs. They didn't have even scriptures as we know them today. They didn't have radio or TV. They didn't have the internet, didn't have Facebook or Twitter. And they really didn't have any uh, institution or professional form of leadership, Bible schools or seminaries. How did they do that? In 1776, fewer than 2% of Americans were Methodists. In 1850, 34% of the U.S. population were Methodists. How did they do that? In 1900, Pentecostalism was a small, humble movement. By 2000, it was 400 million. By 2050, they expect Pentecostalism to hit the one billion mark. Yes, I said billion. How did they do that? Well, during the 40 days between Easter and his ascension, Jesus spent time with his disciples, preparing them uh, to become leaders in his church. On the very last day, he said, don't go anywhere, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, what my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he went on to say, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, ten days later, it was the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, um, also called the Festival of Weeks. It was the second of three major Jewish festivals, and it commemorates the time when the first fruits uh, were harvested and, and brought to the temple. It also celebrated the giving of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. And so there would have been Jews from all over the empire gathered together in Jerusalem. And just as Jesus commanded, the disciples are in Jerusalem. They are gathered together in a house when suddenly there's a sound like a violent blowing wind and filled the house and tongues of fire came upon them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, in other tongues as they were guided. And a crowd of people see what is going on, and they are amazed. They, they hear their disciples praising God in their own language, and they are perplexed. And so Peter 
stands up and he says, listen up, everybody. This is simply the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said would happen. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And so the Holy Spirit is no longer just for a few people like prophets or priests or kings, but for everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. The third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in his church, in his people. And 3,000 people come to faith that day, and the church begins. This frightened band of Jesus followers begins to take the gospel from Jerusalem and then out to Judea and then Samaria to the ends of the earth. Doubting Thomas goes to Persia and then India. Andrew goes to Scythia and Greece. Philip to Phrygia and Syria. Peter to Rome. Paul to Turkey, Greece. Rome and perhaps even as far as Spain. Miracles, signs, and wonders take place through them. And by the time that John, the last of the disciples, dies around 100 AD, the gospel has spread throughout much of the Roman Empire. Now remember, Jesus said the power to take the gospel to the ends of the earth would be provided by the Holy Spirit. That is why they were to wait. They were to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, not use human ingenuity, not human intelligence or human techniques, but this empowerment from the Holy Spirit. How do we get that? How do we experience that Today. Now, believe it or not, not everybody uh, understands this experience in exactly the same way. We all agree upon the importance of receiving the Holy Spirit, but, but some believe you receive the Holy Spirit when you are water baptized. Now, others believe that it happens at the time of your conversion. Most Methodists agree with this. And that the evidence of the Holy Spirit would be the fruit of the Spirit, things like love and joy and, and peace. Pentecostals, however, believe that you receive the Holy Spirit sometime after your conversion and that the evidence of it would be the gifts of the Spirit, things like wisdom and knowledge and, and faith and healing, but especially for them the gift of tongues. But as we look throughout the book of Acts, we see that, 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 that really there are several different ways this happened. And in Acts chapter 2, the crowd assembled to hear Peter's sermon. They asked, what shall we do? And, and, and how does Peter respond? He says, repent and be baptized. He's talking about water baptism here. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So conversion, water baptism, and then baptism with the Holy Spirit. It happens slightly different in, in Acts chapter 8. Philip the evangelist goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel and this great revival breaks out and the leaders in Jerusalem hear about it and so they send, uh, Peter, or they send uh, John and Peter to, to, Eph or to, um, to Samaria. And when they arrived, they, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because Luke tells us they had not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so it's conversion, water baptism, and then later on, Holy Spirit baptism. In Acts chapter 9, it happens in a, a slightly different way to the Apostle Paul. He is converted, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he is water baptized. In Acts chapter 10, uh, uh, Peter is sharing the gospel with a Gentile named Cornelius. They're converted, receive the Holy Spirit, and then water baptized. In Acts chapter 19, it's really different. 
The Apostle Paul comes to Ephesus and, and there are some professed disciples and he asks them the question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're scratching their head. They're thinking, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He says, well then, what water baptism did you receive? Oh, we were baptized in the John's baptism. And so Paul explains to them the difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism. They are water baptized, and then Luke records that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. For whatever reason, these disciples missed out on some important teaching about baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I find that true today in the church, that people understand God the Father, and they understand God the, the Son, but God the Holy Spirit is somewhat of a mystery, and it's confusing. And sometimes that confusion causes us to miss out on the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, in each of these stories, it, it happens differently. So there's not this exact pattern for it to happen just so long as it happens, you see. And we receive this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But even then, it's not a, a one and done in Acts chapter 4, Peter is given a defense of the faith to the ruling religious leaders. And verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So he had already been received the Holy Spirit, but this is like a fresh infilling. And so Peter and John, they head back to the other disciples and they hold a prayer meeting. Verse 31 says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It happens in chapter 7 to Stephen as he is given his defense of the gospel. It happens to the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 and then to all the disciples after they had been kicked out of the city of Pisidian Antioch for talking about Jesus. Verse 52 says this, And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, that seems kind of crazy to me. I don't think I would be filled with joy at being asked to leave town and not come back. But for them, it is. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us that real power for life change. It's the Holy Spirit who, who teaches us, who convicts us of sin in our lives, who guides us into all the truth. It's the Holy Spirit who brings forth the, the fruit of the Spirit in us and that manifests the gifts of the Spirit in the body, the church. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to be witness for, witness for Christ, even in the face of, of opposition. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us joy. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It is God in us. Now, it's interesting to, to note the, the physical and emotional impact of the Holy Spirit when he comes. At the dedication of the temple in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, the presence of God, it says, was so thick that the priests could not even stand in the temple to minister. There's another interesting story in 1 Samuel. King Saul is hunting David to kill him. He's afraid that David is going to usurp the throne, and so... It says that when he sees Samuel, the prophet, that the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he, he strips off all of his clothes and he lays naked on the ground day and night prophesying. 
I'm kind of glad that doesn't happen every day, aren't you? Could be awkward. Now, on the day of Pentecost, we don't know exactly what was going on, but the crowds, what did they think about the disciples who are now filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you remember what they thought? Thought they were drunk. Thought they were drinking new wine. So they were acting differently, weren't they? In the 1800s, when uh, the Methodist camp meeting was going on, there'd be all sorts of physical and emotional experiences. People would faint. They'd be slain in the spirit. They would roll on the ground. There'd be uncontrollable laughter. There'd be running and singing and even dancing in a Methodist church. Can you imagine that? Dancing in church. I think my, my favorite physical manifestation was something called the jerks. Uh, it was a spasmodic twitching of the entire body. Now, some critics thought that it, was, that it was faked, but Peter Cartwright, who was a Methodist circuit rider and who preached in this part of Ohio, tells the story one day of two immaculately dressed women who came to his camp meeting and they sat back in the, in the very back row of, of, of the church. And he says, suddenly the Holy Spirit came upon them and, and they got their jerks and their, their twitching caused their hair to become disheveled and their jewelry to come flying off. People were dodging, missing the jewelry as it flew at them. And they were so embarrassed by what was going on that they, they left the church meeting before it was over. Now, this is not to say that everyone has this kind of physical or emotional experience, but we should not be surprised like if something like that would happen. So how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, it begins by repenting. Again, back to Peter at, at Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we repent. Secondly, we ask. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we simply ask God to fill us with His Holy Spirit. And then we receive it by faith. Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And then don't worry if you don't experience anything dramatic. Some do and some don't. Some people have a very quiet response to it. Melinda, my wife, was all by herself. It was a quiet experience, but this deep feeling of joy, deep, deep joy just came over her. My experience was a, a little bit more emotional, a little bit more physical, it felt like an electrical charge was going through my body. But it doesn't matter so much what you experience because it's by faith, not by feelings. And so you know when it happens because of faith. Now, some Pentecostal groups believe that when it happens that you'll speak in tongues, that this gift is, is evidence that you receive the Holy Spirit. I, I don't see that in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing about the use of spiritual gifts, and he's making the point that not everybody has all the gifts. And he ends by saying, do all speak in tongues? And, of course, the answer is no. He then ends chapter 14 by saying, don't forbid speaking in tongues, 
but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. In other words, use the gifts that God has given you. Just don't get crazy about it. So what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Jesus tells us it's about power. And it's power for two things. Power for ministry and then power to be a witness. Remember Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. You see, one of the major responsibilities of, of the Christ follower is to reproduce ourselves into others. You see, the only hope for this world is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the only way this world will find out is if you and I tell them. Think of it this way. Well, we have about 2,000 people in our church. If each member brought one person, just one person a year and that person met Christ, that would double our outreach to 4,000. And if we did that again the next year, it would double again to 8,000. In five years, that number would be 32,000. In six years, we would have reached all of Anderson Township and beyond with the gospel. Now, the point is not to have a big church. That's not the point at all. The point is to share a great message with those who don't have it. And it's not hard. Marilyn Vadas invites people all the time to Anderson Hills Church. Four of them are now coming regularly. She invited her grandson and, and his wife, and they're coming. One of them is joining today. But wherever she is, she invites people. If she's at a restaurant, she, she invites her waitress. If she's shopping in a store, she, she, invite, she invites the clerk who waits upon her. And so the other day I said, Marilyn, why do you do this? Why do you just invite all these people to church? And she says, it's really quite easy. She says, I just love this church so much, and I've gained so much from it. And I want other people to experience the same thing that I have. How can I not share that with other people? You see, if you're in love with God and you're excited about your church, you will naturally want to invite your friends and your neighbors to come along with you. You see, Methodism grew because early Methodists practiced this. From, from 1750 to 1850, we went from being this tiny little movement to the largest Protestant denomination in America because our members were not bashful about inviting others. You see, what keeps a lot of us bashful are, are simply our, our lack of, an, of, of adequacy. We're not sure what we should say. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Mark 13, he says, Don't be anxious about what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit who speaks through you. Let the Holy Spirit use you and speak through you and trust him for the right words in every situation. But not only do we receive power to be a witness, the Spirit also gives us power for ministry. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And so the Holy Spirit is, is the one who gives us the gifts of the Spirit that we need to be equipped to do ministry. 
You see, one of the goals of this church is that each and every one of us discover our gifts and then find a place where we can serve Christ and serve others. One of the great saints of the past century was Henrietta Mears. She was the director of Christian education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church a generation ago. It was 1947, and Reverend Richard Halverson was at a retreat where Dr. Mears was speaking, and he was seeking her help. He was a defeated and frustrated and fruitless Presbyterian pastor, and he was ready to leave the ministry. So he asked for permission to talk with Dr. Mears after the, after the retreat, and he was directed to a, a small room off of the auditorium. And when he walked in, he, he found her on her knees in, in prayer with two other young men in a similar situation. And instantly, Richard felt the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In that moment, he felt healed of his defeat and of his frustration. And he went on to become chaplain of the U.S. Senate. You see, United Methodists believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are for today. We believe in the gifts of teaching and, and, and shepherding and serving and encouragement and, and evangelism and mercy and, and wisdom. And we think that all those gifts are, are necessary today if we're to fulfill our divine calling. But we also believe that the more sensational gifts, such as healing and miracles and, and tongues and prophecy, while sometimes controversial, are still in the church today. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was pretty adamant about why we don't see gifts used anymore in the church. He says this, This was the real cause why the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Ghost were no longer to be found in the church because the Christians were turned heathens again and only had a dead form to their faith. But not this church. We need the power of the Holy Spirit as much as ever. And if you and I are going to live effective lives, if this church is going to have an impact upon our city, if we're going to be able to help people, we need that empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We can have all sorts of wonderful programs and we can have all sorts of great ideas, but if we don't have the power of God in us, we only have, as Wesley said, a dead form left. So let me ask you, do you want that kind of spiritual power? You remember what, the, what folks said about the early church, about the church. They said this, they are turning the world upside down. Wouldn't you like to see that in our world today? Actually, maybe we'd be turning the world right side up, wouldn't we? It needs that. We need it. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Let's bow our heads, shall we? Come, Holy Spirit. Come and fill the hearts of your people and kindle in us the fire of your love. Amen.